Steve. Come in, Steve. This is Haru. I'm going to do a video stop for you right now. You ready? This is Haru, and you are listening to Baked in a Way. Smoking Indica, doing shit anyway. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. All right, welcome everyone. I want to thank my friend Paulu for that really fun opening voicemail message. Um, for any of you who may have noticed, I might be a couple days behind on publishing. You know, this week to keep on like a seven-day schedule, but uh, no big deal. You know, started recording on Monday and just didn't really wasn't feeling it. Uh, wasn't feeling, you know, what I was. Getting ready to talk about, didn't want to fuck with those stories really, didn't like how I was feeling sitting there that morning, um, so yeah, just, you know, hit pause, hit, you know, rewind, cut that shit out, actually took a break, you know, and, uh, coming back at you today now with a, um, you know, whole new agenda, a whole new docket of content for this week, so, getting a sip of water going here, and I'm gonna, gonna touch the mic, don't, don't flip out anybody, there we go, let's see how that is, alright, uh, we're trying to get this out in Audacity, because I went ahead and cancelled my Twisted Wave audio subscription, and I think they've already locked me out of my editing tool, so I couldn't even do one last one on Twisted Wave online there, uh, but that's fine. Whatever. It looks like we're looks like we're operational. So, um, all right. So let's see here. I've got our notes up. Let's talk about. Let's welcome everybody. Like I said, episode thirty-eight of the Baked and Awake podcast. This is uh, April fourth today, and uh, it's a Wednesday. Um, I went ahead and I wanted to mention to you guys in my opening comments uh, a couple things uh, as I'm trying to do more. Uh, remember, this show is called Baked and Awake. We smoke weed on the show. We talk about weed on the show. Um, we're here to model some version of a responsible cannabis lifestyle for you folks. Um, there's adult language and stuff, so by all means, keep that in mind if you have younger listeners in the room, um, we're here to show you that cannabis can be compatible with responsible adult lifestyles, including parents, as my wife and I are, um, as I hope many of you are, so it's, it's all about positivity here, uh, we also talk about weird philosophical and conspiratorial topics once we're stoned. That's when the real fun starts. Uh, so I hope you stick around. I hope you keep that little, uh, you know, advisement in mind. It's a ridiculous word, advisement, whatever. <laughs> All right. So I also did a. Uh, what helped me this morning get back in the in the seat and get ready to hit it was uh, I did a short guided meditation. Um, I just like clicked on you know guided meditation for positive energy or something like that on YouTube and, and sat there and listened to a nice guided meditation. It was about 10 minutes long and 
Um, I utilized my only mantra that uh, I know or need as far as I'm concerned, the Aum, uh, during my breathing, uh, during my exhalation phase of my breathing, during the guided meditation, and uh, yeah, really just kind of energized me, settled things down. I think it blunted a blossoming attempt at a, at a tension headache of some kind that was going on. Um, and I'm experimenting with that more and more, that being, you know, short, guided meditations. Um, and I look forward to reporting back to you all, you know, on how that goes in the future here. Um, definitely inspired by um, Vanzel Kirk and his friends over at The Lifted Scene. Um, Everybody over there is great. That's a great podcast. Um, I don't talk about them as much as I should probably. They're another local Seattle uh, podcast all about really a lot of great stuff, positivity, and a lot of the um, just bringing meditation into your life. So consciousness, awesome stuff. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to open with like that shout-out and a bunch of other shout-outs here. So just uh, it won't take long to get through them, but these are also kind of foreshadowing of future, uh, uh, future episodes, future content that we're going to bring your way here on Baked and Awake. And um, I'm excited and looking forward to uh, sitting down with sometime soon my friend and cannabis industry veteran, um, fellow podcaster on sabbatical, I understand. Uh, that's Josh Cornut of uh, Greenside Recreational, uh, one of the biggest and most popular uh, recreational shops and with a long history that stretches well back into uh, Washington's medical days, um, Greenside, that is. Um, so, and, and Josh for that matter. So uh, we're going to hopefully talk cannabis industry stuff and cannabis life as, as uh, you know, middling older dudes uh, today in 2018, um, and whatever else he wants to catch us up on. Uh, Blake from Noise Pollution, uh, the Noise Pollution podcast, my good buddy Blake, who's the host over there, uh, he and I are uh, planning a collaboration on, uh, you know, I'll just come right out and say it, a, a future episode on the whole chemtrails versus contrails, geoengineering, 5G, Gwen Towers, you name it, man. We're going to throw a bunch of crazy jargon at you guys and dig in deep on on that super contentious topic. Um, Should be really interesting and fun. Uh, Another one I'm looking forward to coming up, I I look forward to having my friend Eli Sirota of the Not So Crazy podcast of Blizzard the Wizard and Eli, one of the wildest, most unique podcasts you'll ever listen to. Uh, check it out sometime. Um, we're going to get together and talk comic books, I think, uh, is where I want to start with Eli, and we'll go who knows where from there. Uh, also stoked to welcome, sometime soon, in, in the coming weeks here, a uh, former colleague of mine in tech, Garrett. Uh, Garrett, looking forward to you coming through, uh, us sitting down, talking about the surveillance state, talking about the Internet of Things. Uh, also, I think only appropriate for us to talk about parsing the truth from the veritable shit tsunami that is the, air quotes here, new information age. I don't know if I just invented a term there or not, but eh, I'm going with it. I recognize this little tune from Auntie here in the background, Auntie Loode, our royalty-free music supplier. 
but yeah, Garrett, looking forward to that talk. So um, we'll we'll sync up in in the DMs and emails soon on that. Look at our calendars. Uh, gonna have Nate Lopez back soon. Uh, Nate, who I've already got two great episodes in the in the bag with uh, that you guys can go back and check out and enjoy. Um, we're going to talk about him and his time growing up in the Jehovah's Witness religion. Um, that's going to be a great episode, I'm sure. Uh, my friend JJ, another former guest, a recent guest. Um, JJ was just on. We talked about all sorts of fun motorcycle stuff. Uh, I'm hoping to welcome him back very soon and have him uh, give us some of his impressions and uh, reflections on his encounters with DMT, uh, the entheogen drug of the famous The Spirit Molecule documentary that many of you may have watched or encountered over the years. Uh, My friend from Instagram, The Wizard of Odds, who provided us great content for our previous Landmark Forum-related episodes. He's going to come back and do a call with me soon. We're going to talk about his um, further exposure to the Landmark Forum in the form of their advanced curriculum. Uh, also, my friend Meg, uh, a local from Seattle here, uh, who I met through Instagram and through the podcast, and uh, we're going to talk to Meg about her journey to wellness uh, as powered by cannabis. Um, and Meg deals with a couple different uh, chronic health issues, uh, quite serious ones that we'll uh, let her get into with us on the on the show when we sit down together. Um, but stoked to look forward to having her as a guest as well, and I think you folks should be also. Um, anyway, that's about it for the shout-outs. Quite a, you know, quite a little list there, but kind of just letting you guys know we got stuff coming. You know, we've got stuff that there are ideas that aren't even notes in a folder yet. I'm talking episodes covering gardening, permaculture, okay, that that philosophy in gardening, living soils, no-till gardening, companion planting, composting. And compost teas, that's something that I'm just learning more about right now and looking forward to trying some compost teas myself in the garden this year um, and sharing with you how that goes. Um, really stoked about that, actually, <laughs> uh, more than you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, lots of great content coming. I hope everyone is ready to take this journey together because it's only going to get wilder and more fun from here. So, um I'm going to hit pause for just a second here, and I'm going to get ready to puff on our strain of the week and tell you all about that. That was our opening comment, so um, yeah, get ready. We're going to jump into the whole agenda. I'll tell you all about it when when we get back here in just a moment. You guys uh, chill, and I'm going to play a little something for you, and... You know, you do what you need to do while you listen to this as well. Pack that bowl, roll something up. Plug that email in. Whatever you're doing this morning. Comment on my Instagram. Let me know what you do when you listen to the show. I would love that. All right, coming right back. Hey there, I'm Blake, and I'm the host of the Noise Pollution Podcast. Join me weekly as I explore the interesting things of the world with an open mind and an open heart. 
where open dialogue is embraced and all sides of the spectrum are brought to the table. Everything is a topic of discussion. Always remember, perspective is key. You can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or any of your favorite places where you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram at Noise Pollution Podcast and on Twitter at Pollution Radio. Thank you. think we're back. All right. Thank you, Blake, for dropping by and giving us a little uh, taste of what noise pollution was about while everybody got ready for the episode here. So um, let's jump right in. I'm going to spark this strain of the week, which is our blueberry headband strain from uh, my own garden, Smooth Sailing Cannabis from Tacoma. I like to roll up a lot for the show because it's it's very conducive to conversation. I can gesture a little bit with the doobie in my hands and of course it's pretty quiet. Um, and you know, usually takes care of me pretty well. So... getting that that baby going good here and actually it tastes nice and you really get that you get that note that fruity note from the blueberry um on those first couple of hits most strongly of course and um it's got nice white ash here i'm using a hemp paper um on this today on this joint and then i wanted to read you guys the sort of the down low on a blueberry on blueberry headband. Um, I think we're using all bud today, okay? Um, and you know they rate this three stars out of five based on a very you know pr- pretty narrow cross section here of nine votes. So uh, eh, you know we won't weigh that too heavily. But their strain information on blueberry headband indicates that it is an indica dominant hybrid. So. Smoke indica do shit anyway. Steve is like, yeah, let's fuck with that. 70% indica, 30% sativa. This indica dominant hybrid, which has a sativa to indica ratio of about 30-70, is exactly what its name suggests. A direct descendant of blueberry and headband. Both extremely popular choices in their own right. Blueberry headband isn't nearly as popular as its parents, but it's an effective medical choice in the treatment of nausea lack of appetite, chronic pain, anxiety, and low mood. What? I have hmm, everything but the nausea and lack of appetite, right? (laughs) Uh, The effects. They're a combination of physical and mental. (laughs) Excuse me while I die. Doobie, that's for sure. Um, uh, 
the effects are a combination of physical and mental, suggesting this is a true hybrid. The high is calming and euphoric, with energy, creativity, and happiness. THC levels hover between 10% and 20%, making this a good choice for occasional or first-time smokers. CBD content, on the other hand, is much too low to use this strain for conditions that require that chemical, such as epilepsy. Widely reported adverse effects include cotton mouth and red eyes, as well as paranoia, dizziness, and headaches. Risking it all for you guys over here, okay? I hope you appreciate this. Phew! I'm already feeling it in the head. <laughs> yeah, headband. The headband is here. The headband is here. Blueberry headband produces an earthy lemon aroma and a sweet flavor of blueberries. You're absolutely right. I think actually what I was smelling first wasn't so much the the berry. I'm tasting the berry now on my tongue. And anybody who smokes blueberry strains and enjoys them, that's one of the things that you can absolutely taste. And even me with my dull nose and probably lackluster sense of taste naturally tied to that um, detects a persistent berry type uh, after impression on your palate in your mouth um, and a joint is really good at delivering that kind of flavor too anyway so they say the strain is available through medical marijuana dispensaries on the west coast in Arizona and in Michigan though it can also sometimes be found on the black market all right, so that was Blueberry Headband, our strain of the week. There's more info there at All Bud. Links in the show notes. Um, I'm enjoying it. I'll, I'll let you know how it continues to hit me as we talk about our next item and next little mini story. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to turn around and grab it and come back because it's something I want to hold in my hand while I talk about. Okay, so... This is uh, like an, an unpaid, unsolicited, uh, not even a product review, but like a spotlight about something that I think is cool and a game changer for any of us who love our concentrates, okay? So if you're a dabber, if you have a vape pen, if you fuck with any of that kind of stuff, if you have one of those new portable, um, larger battery-powered, um, like, e-vape rigs, um, dab rigs, that is, um, this is the, this is something that, uh, the reason why I hollered at my buddy Josh uh, Cornut from Greenside Recreational is because he gave me a great opportunity to demo this uh, vape, and I'm tripping on this thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm buying this thing. <laughs> I'm keeping it, that's for sure. And uh, it's the Aris 8, and it's I'm calling it a vape straw. You could call it a nectar collector. Um, they call it a dabber, um, and absolutely it is a dabber. Um, it's a battery-powered nectar collector so take your normal vape pen form factor it's a little wider this is a pretty beefy you know smaller battery that's in this thing but um it's a little bigger than your average little um like vuber pilot or something like that i think that's uh the one that i have for my regular cartridges um this is a 510 thread so it'll take a cartridge it also has uh, one of those stainless steel open bath um refillable concentrate um, 
you know, caddies, uh, like a little tank that you can put your oil of choice in and uh, then replace a uh, removable mouthpiece over it and, and vape hit it. Um, I'll, do, I'll do a little quick uh, hit of this on Instagram if you guys want to check that out uh, sometime, you know, soon after uh, the episode comes out and point you guys back at the episode if you want to check this out. But um, I do have a link to where you can find it, um, you know, online if you're not in this area, if you're around here. Uh, by all means, if you're in Western Washington in the Seattle corridor, go see Josh and friends at Greenside Recreational in Des Moines and get a great deal on one of these things. I'm here to tell you that, um, you know, three different heat settings, uh, turns on and off just like the vape pen that you already use. You can carry around a little silicone jelly of the concentrate of your choice, and you can dab out of it like big, blasty hits um, like you never could with a cartridge. Um, it's pretty damn cool, and it's the lowest profile way to dab that I can even think of that's been offered up to this point in time. Um, you know, I mean, the only less uh, obnoxious form factor is full-on cartridge status, but I defy any cartridge to hit the way this thing can hit when you have it on a higher heat setting and, and you go for it like you're actually trying to take a dab. All right, so that's what's up with the Aris 8. Check them out. They're pretty cool. And I think, you know, I don't even think you're going to be out 40 bucks for this thing retail uh, at a shop, so. All right. So transitioning from fake to awake, we have a story that should wake you up because it's sobering and sad, uh, but it is about uh, cannabis-related matters, and uh, this is coming from the Denver Post. Um, we're going to read it on the denverpost.com, and this is uh, more sessions-related uh, cannabis industry uh, frustrations uh, in the form of a memo that many of you who listen to this podcast and others like it um, or just are uh, active in the space uh, would definitely be aware of. And that is that Jeff Sessions' latest memo, and this, by the way, this story is new. This is just uh, the 22nd of March, 2018, is uh, when, we, when this came out. Um, make sure my sound isn't too... Take that down a little for you guys before... Before we do that for the whole episode, right? Am I yelling over that music? Let me know how that was, because we'll just dial it down and then keep moving forward. Fucking with this new tool, so just happy I'm seeing bars going across the screen right now. All right. Who wrote this story for the Denver Post? John Ingold and Alicia Wallace. All right. Uh, thank you, guys. Let's see what you got for us. Jeff Sessions, latest memo, pushes prosecutors to seek the death penalty against big drug dealers. That could include legal marijuana business owners. Okay, not to put too fine a point on it. So this isn't a new law. Okay, this is Sessions sending out a memo that reminds people of a statute that exists that... To clarify, their subtitle here says, Little-known federal law makes it possible to execute people who grow more than 60,000 marijuana plants. Commercial growers in any market um, will all exceed that threshold rather quickly uh, once a legal market is opened up, even the smaller ones. Um, it's a matter of time, right? They'll 
count this cumulatively, I'm sure, against anyone in the industry. Um, I don't have that expressly broken down here, but I'm telling you that's how they're going to do us on <laughs> that kind of thing. At any rate, getting into it. To the litany of challenges facing Colorado's state-licensed marijuana business owners, add another one. The federal government could, but probably won't, try to execute them. This week, U.S. Attorney General, US Attorney General Jeff Sessions sent a memo to the nation's federal prosecutors urging them to seek the death penalty in cases involving large-scale drug traffickers. The memo points to an existing but little-known federal law that already allows for such a punishment. Sessions' memo talks largely about opioids, but federal law contains no such drug-specific limitation on prosecutors' power. Trace the law's meandering route through federal statutes and you'll come to this conclusion. Anyone convicted of cultivating more than 60,000 marijuana plants or possessing more than 60,000 kilograms of a substance that contains marijuana could face death as a punishment. So did Sessions just greenlight using the death penalty against the nation's largest marijuana business owners? I think it's still very theoretical, said Sam Kamen, a University of Denver law professor who specializes in marijuana law and in the death penalty. I don't think anyone thinks the federal government is going to seek the death penalty against a state-licensed business. But what it highlights is this enormous disconnect with federal and state law. Aaron Smith, the executive director of the National Cannabis Industry Association, similarly dismissed the possibility of executions for marijuana business moguls, even if it is technically possible under the law. Okay, Aaron, make us feel better. Quote, I really think that's just bluster, he said. <laughs> Thanks for dropping in. Oh, jeez. You're cracking me up. Okay. I'm cracking myself up. The Washington Post's Christopher Ingram was among the first to notice the latest Sessions Memo's potential impact on licensed marijuana businesses, which, while legal under their state's laws, are criminal drug traffickers under federal law. They have a tweet here, embedded... If I'm reading the statutes correctly, this means an aggressive federal prosecutor could theoretically seek the death penalty for state legal marijuana business operators growing 60,000 or more plants or producing 60,000 kilos of product at the risk of sounding repetitive, edibles, etc., containing marijuana. He tweeted that on March 21st of this year. Continuing, but Smith and Kamen said they and others familiar with the fine intricacies of marijuana law have known about the death penalty provision for a while. 
They questioned whether it would hold up under a Supreme Court challenge. The key to the law is the quantity of plants an operation cultivates, 60,000, double what is needed for federal prosecutors to seek a lifetime prison sentence. Colorado's biggest marijuana businesses are secretive when it comes to how many plants they are growing at one time. State regulators won't release that data for individual businesses. I honestly don't know if Washington releases that data upon request or not. Um, I don't believe it's published in most of the data that I have visibility into, but I don't pay for any of the premium clients out there right now, um, some of which get a little more granular at the retailer level anyway, uh, in terms of what they sell and stuff. Anyway, something for the future to try to figure out. Um, so, you know, here's where, they, here's where they're going though with this um, but asked how many businesses have more than 60,000 plants in their warehouses and greenhouses Smith said quote there are many and I absolutely agree there are and there they are here as well and in any of the other markets around the country so uh, in June the last month for which this data is available, there were nearly 1 million marijuana plants under cultivation by Colorado's state-licensed ca cannabis businesses. So that must be in terms of some, yeah, so they have some kind of, they, the, the for which this data is available part is a clickable link that shows a source for where they're pulling that data. Um, let's make that smaller, though. All right, so I open that in the background. We'll see what that's about. Colorado Department of Revenue Enforcement Division, some kind of white paper. So that's cool. Well, yeah, I'll check that out. It's nice and dry and fucking boring. <laughs> I'll look at it for you guys. All right. So they point out here, in California, one of the biggest dispensaries is building out a farm. It expects will grow 100,000 plants at a time. Okay, so there you go, boom. And that's like every three months, uh, roughly. Two months or so, two and a half. And, all right, and Smith said, laws in states that have more recently adopted legal marijuana but limit the number of sales licenses available have probably increased the number of supersized pot grows in the country. Again, absolutely. It's happened here in Washington, east of the mountains. Same in Oregon, I'm sure. So, while marijuana business owners think their imminent capital prosecutions are unlikely, they're not exactly joking about it either. Nor are we on this podcast. Christy Kelly, the executive director of the Colorado-based Marijuana Industry Group, said her organization has been closely watching Sessions and his policy, policy shifts. Although Sessions has pulled back more explicit protection for cannabis businesses that are operating in compliance with their state's laws, a lot of discretion is still left up to local U.S. attorneys to decide whether they want to file charges against a marijuana company. 
Absent obvious violations of state law, federal prosecutors in Colorado, I think here in Washington as well, um, have been fairly hands-off with the industry. And Colorado U.S. Attorney Bob Troyer said in January that nothing had changed in his office's marijuana enforcement priorities since President Donald Trump took office. For Kelly, that means businesses should continue to follow state law in good faith and not freak out unless they receive more information suggesting that they should. So we've talked about a lot of this before just without the capital punishment component. This was, you know, how to avoid being raided, how to avoid being fined, how to avoid being a, a problem and, you know, an example of a problem in the uh, industry, in your marketplace, and therefore, you know, open to potential federal prosecution. Um, so, yeah, they, so they tried to call Troyer's office, um, in D.C. and they didn't get a reply. Um, a Federal Department of Justice spokeswoman declined to elaborate on the memo's meaning also. So, you know, okay, so that's about it. You know, um, yeah, basically, yeah, they're just saying statutorily it's possible they can do this to us. What Sessions is reminding us, Cayman said, is that losing your life is at least statutorily possible. And, yeah, I guess that's absolutely true. Uh, John Ingold, let's read his bio. He's been a Denver Post reporter since 2000 and has covered crime, courts, local government, the state legislature, marijuana legalization, and now health and medicine. Alicia, Alicia Wallace joined the Cannabis in July 2016 very popular uh, web blog, uh, awesome uh, content they produce. They cover national marijuana policy and business. She contributes to the Denver Post's beer industry coverage. In her 13 years as a business news reporter, her coverage has spanned the economy, sports authority, airlines, biotech, technology, and natural foods. Uh... You can find them both all over online. You can find them here on the Denver Post. Thank you, Denver Post, uh, for that story. And, yeah, everybody, just sort of, if you're not in the biz and you weren't aware, now you know a little bit more about what some of us, you know, in a lot of cases for the first time are facing is, you know, a lot of us, you know, haven't been heavily involved in the, you know, former black markets and gray markets uh, for a great many years to a very great extent. You know, the legal market, the nature of it, not only affords the opportunity for new people to come in and mess with cannabis for the first time ever, try to, you know, build businesses uh, around and powered by it um, for the first time ever. But for everybody, veteran and new people alike, the prospect of supplying a much bigger white market, legal market, than ever existed before in the black market, naturally leads to, you know, business models that are giant grows, giant processors, you know, that um, whether they have 
that many plants or not, they've obviously included the processors in this mix by calling out 60,000 kilograms of cannabis, you know, product, edibles, etc. You know, they're, they're pointing out everybody, and that, of course, would include the retailers who then purchase that in turn. So any part of a vertical that includes selling to the public is exposed by that kind of memo and and the and the statute in the nation that places cannabis as a schedule 1 substance to be demonized and treated on the same level as scary scary drugs that kill people routinely and in great numbers and in at crisis levels around the country today so i don't know it's uh, it's a little sucky, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but you get up and go to work every day, and you try to do what you can to stay on top of where we can continue to take concrete action to move forward. And there, I've just made work for myself because I guess I'll have to find us another show link um, for the show notes for. You know what we can do to watch these guys on this front, and where where people are pushing back directly the best right now in terms of counter legislation, which I think I have uh, an idea or two about that already. So, but we'll move on from that story. Without further ado, I want to revisit another favorite topic of mine, um, and that is you know, the surveillance state. We've been talking about it. It's just sort of an ongoing topic. Uh, and yeah, I'll just drop that, you know, label on it because that's what we're living under is is that dichotomy today. And mainstream, you know, media, pop culture, and everything is about how we're living immersed in it. What show do we watch that isn't filled with that as the subtext of the background of uh, every, you know, relationship, interaction, uh, you know, investigation, intrigue, uh, you know, uh, mystery, uh, etc. Core element of, uh, of a show doesn't, isn't also always depicted within the framework of the pervasive technology that the characters use in their own lives and in relating to one another, and as I said, in the case of like shows with like investigations and things like that, it's it's never ending how we show on TV, on you know, all, in all your favorite Hollywood movies, how people are constantly being betrayed by their own technology and how they're being exploited by their own uh, proclivities in terms of uh, their relationships to their own technology, and you know. I, when I say their own technology, I don't know if we own the technology or the technology owns us at this point, right? That's one of the kind of ongoing themes here. As I sit here in front of a giant, you know, 30-something inch monitor and podcast at you guys <laughs> about it. Uh, but yeah, that's all right. We're going to talk about it, though. So here, let's, let's see this story. This one's a little older. It's like from last year. And it comes from the Harvard Gazette. Um... And I think it's just like, a, you know, a blog post kind of commentary. Um, but this is, um, so this commentary then becomes an interview 
Um, and I'm going to read, yeah, most of that, I think, because I liked it, and it's not super long either. Um, and uh, it sort of foreshadows and talks about, well, it doesn't so much foreshadow, but, like, we're going, we're rewinding back before Cambridge Analytica here, you know, but we're post, you know, post, well, it's 2017, so we're post everything. We're post Snowden, we're post WikiLeaks, we're post, uh, you know, the Hillary papers, and we're post the, uh, you know, recent, uh, what is it, declassification of the Kennedy documents and uh, the redacted papers from the 9-11 Commission report. Uh, all that stuff is out there. Uh, uh, Equifax breach and plenty of others are in the rear view. We've got all the financial crises. You know, so these guys are talking in 2017 just about internet privacy, which is actually where I started there. So, sorry for getting expansive for a moment. Maybe those are things that we'll continue to talk about in the future, huh? Um, bringing it back, though. The Harvard Gazette here. Um, almost my birthday last year, August 24th, so right about, just about when we were doing episode number two or so. Liz Mineo, Harvard staff writer, writes, On internet privacy, be very afraid. And they have this under the heading of National and World Affairs, by the way. Okay? Um, sub the sort of first lead-in says, Surveillance is the business model of the Internet, Berkman and Belfer Fellow says. In the Internet era, consumers seem increasingly resigned to giving up fundamental aspects of their privacy for convenience in using their phones and computers, and have grudgingly accepted that being monitored by corporations and even governments is just a fact of modern life. In fact, Internet users in the United States have fewer privacy protections than those in other countries. In April, Congress voted to allow Internet service providers to collect and sell their customers' browsing data. By contrast, the European Union hit Google this summer with a $2.7 billion antitrust fine. A good start. They don't even feel that, though, even if they do pay it, which they probably have no intention of. To assess the Internet landscape, the Gazette interviewed cybersecurity expert Bruce Shiner, a fellow with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School. I think it's Schneier. Excuse me, Bruce Schneier. Schneier talked about government and corporate surveillance and about what concerned users can do to protect their privacy. So now we're going to roll into this interview with these folks here in the persona of the Gazette and Schneier. The Gazette asks, after whistleblower Edward Snowden's revelations concerning the National Security Agency's mass surveillance operation in 2013, how much has the government landscape in this field changed? Schneier. Snowden's revelations made people aware of what was happening, but little changed as a result. 
the USA Freedom Act resulted in some minor changes in one particular government data collection program. The NSA's data collection hasn't changed. The laws limiting what the NSA can do haven't changed. The technology that permits them to do it hasn't changed. It's pretty much the same. Should consumers be alarmed by this? People should be alarmed, both as consumers and as citizens. But today, what we care about is very dependent on what is in the news at the moment. And right now, surveillance is not in the news. It was not an issue in the 2016 election, and by and large, it isn't something that legislators are willing to make a stand on. Snowden told his story, Congress passed a new law in response, and people moved on. Uh, they have a cool little uh, seven-point uh, inset, uh, like infographic on low-tech tips to pr protect your privacy online. Um, they're they're good. I read this before I started for once for you guys properly, like fully and like quietly and like really got into it, like you know trying to do a little better job at some of that. <laughs> hey, onward and upward, right? Uh, so these low-tech tips, uh, you know, I do a few of them. I don't do all of them, and uh, let's see. I don't know. Maybe we'll see how many we check off off of seven here. Uh, first, it says don't post identifying details on public sites, such as tagging photos on the shit. Okay. Boof. No. <laughs> Use search engines that don't track or store personal info, like DuckDuckGo. Also, no. I'm using Google like everybody else all the time, you guys. Excuse me. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll check it out. I use like some stealthy version of something, like a Google Incognito search or something on on the on mobile. And I have a Firefox like stealthy downloader on mobile too, but that's about it. I don't know, and I don't even know how good they are if at all. Um, then it says four organize against surveillance. Okay, I like that. You know, I think I'm trying. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, could do more work on that. Uh, five, place a sticker over your computer's camera to prevent a hacker from taking pictures of you. Hell yeah, do that. Been doing that. Six, don't use cloud backup, Google Calendar, or web... No, I didn't. I don't do that. I use all of them. You guys serious? I gotta buy a bunch of big, fat hard drives? I think that's what they want us to do, you guys. But I think to myself, well... How safe is that hard drive? Because do I have to unplug it all the time to keep it from being drilled into? You know, if it's there, it's recognized on my system that's also sitting there. And if somebody's hacking me directly, that style, I would think they could just get right to you anyway. I don't know. I need an, an IT expert to talk to me about that a little bit more these days. Understand that better. Uh, finally, though, configure your browser to delete cookies. Yes, do that. Do that. So let me see. Out of seven, I'm gonna I'm gonna tally it up. I missed on one. I missed on two. Oh, I I didn't read three. Turn location services off on your phone when not needed. Well, guess what? I turn that off a lot of the time on almost everything. I only turn it back on now and then for my Navi uh, for, you know, those purposes. Try to keep it pretty locked down. 
I could be missing. I should go review and see if there's any apps creeping on me right now that I didn't know about. Because, you know, you, you go look. You probably have 30 apps that are using location services on your phone at any given time. So, something to think about. Um, so, yeah. Missed on one and two. I get a point for three. I'm not going to count organizing against surveillance in four. Um, I, I think it's a good step that I'm talking about it on the podcast, but I need to do more on that front to count it. Uh, I got a sticker on my phone's camera and, or over my computer camera. People do it on their phone, too, if they're smart, so I really only get half a point for that, but I'm going to take it. Uh, don't use cloud backup. I missed it. I do delete cookies. So I get three points out of seven. How many did you get? Uh, that wasn't a challenge. That's like a good thing to check, right? All right, so getting back to the story, though, they continue. The Gazette says, what about corporate surveillance? How pervasive is it? Schneier, surveillance is the business model of the Internet. Everyone is under constant surveillance by many companies, ranging from social networks like Facebook to cell phone providers. This data is collected compiled, analyzed, and used to try to sell us stuff. Personalized advertising is how these companies make money and is why so much of the internet is free to users. We are the product, not the customer. Now, um, I freestyled a lot of comments that at least echoed this particular response from this smart person who the Harvard Gazette talked to. <coughs> I think last episode. So, yeah, take that for what it's worth. All I'm saying is, is a lot of stuff that we talk about on this podcast that ends up having to be shoved under that, you know, quote-unquote conspiracy umbrella is only under that umbrella from a point of view that willfully categorizes it as such. Because the surveillance and the purposes to which it are being put, and in my opinion and many others, the nefariousness or the diabolical nature of that uh, outcome that they're seeking is not a conspiracy or well okay it's not a conspiracy theory it fulfills the uh, the qualifications of being a conspiracy okay let's not forget the difference between conspiracies that are and conspiracy theories about things that may or may not be. So, anyway, they ask, should they be stopped? Schneier says, that's a philosophical question. Personally, I think that in many cases the answer is yes. It's a question of how much manipulation we allow in our society. Right now, the answer is basically, anything goes. It wasn't always this way. In the 1970s, Congress passed a law to make a particular form of subliminal advertising illegal because it was believed to be morally wrong. 
That advertising technique is child's play compared to the kind of personalized manipulation that companies do today. The legal question is whether this kind of cyber manipulation is an unfair and deceptive business practice. And if so, can the Federal Trade Commission step in and prohibit a lot of these practices? That's the key line out of this whole story for me. The legal question is whether this kind of cyber manipulation is an unfair and deceptive business practice. I kind of feel like it is. So, can the Federal Trade Commission step in and prohibit a lot of these practices? So we're going to see him go on to continue to take a, a really strong stance here for strong regulation. I don't know if we can trust our government to, to implement strong regulation. But let's see here. Gazette, why doesn't the commission do that? Why is this intrusion happening? And nobody does anything about it. Okay, so this is, this is us here. This is you in the UK who might be listening. Uh, you down in Australia, who I understand, have a lot of surveillance on your people nationwide. Um, uh, Dave, I'd love to know more about that, uh, if you want to talk to me about that, buddy, uh, or Sean and Jack. Um, so, he says, in response to that question, why does nobody do anything about it? We are living in a world of low government effectiveness, and there the prevailing as he characterizes it, neoliberal idea is that companies should be free to do what they want. Our system is optimized for companies that do everything that is legal to maximize profits, with little nod to morality. Shoshana Zuboff, professor at the Harvard Business School, invented the term surveillance capitalism to describe what's happening. It's very profitable and it feeds off the natural property of computers to produce data about what they are doing. For example, cell phones need to know where everyone is so they can deliver phone calls. As a result, they are ubiquitous surveillance devices beyond the wildest dreams of Cold War East Germany. Absolutely true. And they are so wired up <laughs> on us, as we were just talking about. They got us coming and going on the phones, you guys. Literally. They ask, but Google and Facebook face more restrictions in Europe than in the United States. Why is that? Schneier says, Europe has more stringent privacy regulations than the United States. In general, Americans tend to mistrust government and trust corporations. Europeans tend to trust government and mistrust corporations. The result is that there are more controls over government surveillance in the U.S. than in Europe. On the other hand, Europe constrains its corporations to a much greater degree than the U.S. does. That's weird. It's a weird flip-flop there. Interesting. But, you know, I don't want either of them in there to the extent that they are. Because they're all in your pockets and they're in your brain. They're messing with, you know, they're messing, they're, <laughs> they're trying to. Ah, all right, shut up, Steve. So, uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, Europe constrains its corporations to a much greater degree than the U.S. does. U.S. law has a hands-off way of treating Internet companies. Computerized systems, for example, are exempt from many normal product liability laws. 
This was originally done out of fear of stifling innovation. Another quote here, he says is, they, they have it like popped out, Google knows quite a lot about all of us. No one ever lies to a search engine. Great point. This is Schneier again, by the way. I used to say that Google knows more about me than my wife does, but that doesn't go far enough. Google knows me even better because Google has perfect memory in a way that people don't. So that's, you know, yeah, pretty key. So... Yeah, so actually, yeah, I'm not even going to truncate this much because it's good. So, you know, listen to it in two parts if you have to because I think we're going to be a little bit over an hour probably. Um, Gazette. It seems that U.S. customers are resigned to the idea of giving up their privacy in exchange for using Google and Facebook for free. What's your view on this? Schneier replies, the survey data is mixed. Consumers are concerned about their privacy and don't like companies knowing their intimate secrets. But they feel powerless and are often resigned to the privacy invasions because they don't have any real choice. People need to own credit cards, carry cell phones, and have email addresses and social media accounts. That's what it takes to be a fully functioning human being in the early 21st century. This is why we need the government to step in. I mean, yeah, I don't know who else. I mean, corporations aren't going to regulate themselves, I guess. Um, The Gazette says, You're one of the most well-known cybersecurity experts in the world. What do you do to protect your privacy online? So I like this answer as well, because this is really the challenge that I'm, I'm dealing with, that we're all dealing with. He says here, I don't have any secret techniques. I do the same thing everyone else does, and I make the same trade-offs that everybody else does. I bank online. I shop online. I carry a cell phone, and it's always turned on. I use credit cards, and I have airline frequent flyer accounts. Perhaps the weirdest thing about my internet behavior is that I'm not on any social media platforms. That might make me a freak. Yes, kind of. A little, I mean. But honestly, it's good for my productivity. All right, good. Fine. You're the boss, Bruce. We're talking to you today. In general, security experts aren't paranoid. We just have a better understanding of the trade-offs we are doing. Like everybody else, we regularly give up privacy for convenience. We just do it knowingly and consciously. Yeah, that's, I mean... That's really good. I don't know what else is, you know. Like, I could beef up in a few places. I hear, you know, I hear use VPN. Then I hear VPN is just as compromised as anything. Uh, You know, use Tor. Don't use Tor. That makes you, you know, a target. Because then you're, you know, a weird internet user that they don't like these days. So, weigh in, you know, if you listened this far. Let me know what you're doing for your own internet privacy. Oh, so then they ask him 
you know, they're not done. What else do you do to protect your privacy online? Do you use encryption for your email? Great question, I think. Um, he says, I have come to the conclusion that email is fundamentally insecurable. If I want to have a secure online conversation, I use an encrypted chat application like Signal. Now, this story predates probably the Signal, Telegram, everybody else is compromised and has backdoors and zero-day exploits. Um, WeChat, all of them. Uh, Telegram, I said. All right, yeah. Uh, story, right? This is a little bit before that was broke. By and large, email security is out of our control. For example, I don't use Gmail because I don't want Google having all my email. The last time I checked, Google has half my email because you all use Gmail. <laughs> That's a really good point. Gazette, what does Google know about you? You, me, everybody, I think. He says, Google's not saying because they know it would freak people out. But think about it. Google knows quite a lot about all of us. And then he goes on to that quote, no one ever lies to a search engine. I used to say that Google knows more about me than my wife does, but that doesn't go far enough. Google knows me even better because Google has perfect memory in a way that people don't. And that's actually fine and worth repeating because we should all think about that. Because we have 50 Googles tracking us too. I mean, all of them are little baby versions of it and are using Google plugins and Google analytics of their own to help collect shit that they're not collecting on their own. So, uh, Gazette says, is Google the big brother? Schneier's reply, big brother in the Orwellian sense meant big government. That's not Google, and that's not even the NSA. What we have is many little brothers. Google, Facebook, Verizon, etc. They have enormous amounts of data on everybody, and they want to monetize it. They don't want to respect your privacy. So, he's got a book. They say, in your book, Data and Goliath, the hidden battles to collect your data and control your world, you recommend a few strategies for people to protect their privacy online. Which one is the most effective? Unfortunately, we live in a world where most of our data is out of our control. Probably, as he just pointed out with his emails. As soon as, you know, he emails you back or replies to your email, he's got the other half of... He's got half of... Yeah. Alright, shut up, Steve. <laughs> Headband. Unfortunately, we live in a world where most of our data is out of our control. It's in the cloud, stored by companies that may not have our best interests at heart. So while there are technical strategies people can employ to protect their privacy, they're mostly around the edges. The best recommendation I have for people is to get involved in the political process. Best thing we can do as consumers and citizens is to make this a political issue. Force our legislators to change the rules. Opting out doesn't work. It's nonsense to tell people not to carry a credit card or not to have an email address. And buyer beware is putting too much onus on the individual. And I agree. Why, why do we have to give up everything that we've created to live without the onus of pervasive 
and in some cases kind of nefarious surveillance in many cases people don't test their food for pathogens or their airlines for safety the government does it but the government has failed in protecting consumers from internet companies and social media giants but this will come around the only effective way to control big corporations is through big government my hope is that technologists also get involved in the political process in government in think tanks universities and so on that's where real change will happen I tend to be short-term pessimistic and long-term optimistic. I don't think this will do society in. This is not the first time we've seen technological changes that threaten to undermine society, and it won't be the last. All right. Well, I injected enough of my own peanut gallery commentary on that. I think it was a great story, though, and I think it really just all still applies absolutely as much right now as it did last August when that came out. So I hope you enjoyed uh, that interview from the Harvard Gazette. Um, all right, did I have anything else for you? Well, that's that's most of the episode, really. I was going to mention that I have an upcoming event, uh, PNW, the Pacific Northwest Spring Meet, which is a huge Volkswagen culture uh, car event, uh, car show and, and meet up uh, there for the whole motor culture of the Pacific Northwest, and I'm looking forward to checking that out. I'll tell you guys a whole lot more about that uh, probably next week. Um, and then also next week, I'm, uh, I'm hoping to address a question from a friend and family member uh, that uh, sort of extended uh, about, you know, kids and cannabis and, and raising, you know, a, a healthy family up with healthy attitudes towards it in uh, in a lot of cases, uh, areas where it's not legal, like Washington, right? I, I live with one version of this reality, and others live with a very different one. So, um, I also, we're going to be talking about taxing Amazon here in western Washington, uh, and a movement towards, you know, more appropriately doing so. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think they really pay much taxes, if any, you guys. Uh, so that's going to be a controversial topic because some people will come out very strongly in favor of, you know, letting these corporations um, operate. Uh, you know, this is the only the latest in a long line. I mean, we, we deal with this with Boeing and many others, um, you know, in this state for decades, uh, the warehousers and others as well. Um, there's many industries that have that kind of uh, preferential treatment, but tech is very high profile because of the money involved prominence, uh, Bezos in the case of Amazon being the richest person in the world as of recently, um, you know, for those who are following that kind of thing. So, all right. So yeah. And, and, and who knows what else we'll find a couple other things to do as well. All right. So thank you for listening as always. Thank you for sticking with me. Um, I really, as always appreciate everybody's feedback and interactions uh, behind the scenes uh, continue to get at me uh, with suggestions for topics and let me know how this episode sounded because I'm going to proceed to edit and fuck with this uh, later um, this is going to continue to take a little longer because I'm going to go and get to work now um, but yeah alright 
The show notes have links to everything we talked about today. Uh, most of everybody's social medias that I mentioned today as well, with a couple of exceptions. Um, and then uh, if you want to support the show and uh, rock some really cool Baked and Awake gear, I've got a link to the Tee Public shop there that's always there and ready to go for you guys. Um, Auntie, love your music, brother. Thank you so much for that, as always. Uh, fellow podcasters, aspiring podcasters can find us on Facebook, uh, along with a bunch of other amazing podcasters, several of whom I mentioned up at the top of this episode, uh, on Facebook at the Podcast Builders League Facebook community, and there's a link to find that here in the show notes as well. So, um, all right. I don't know. I know this week is, uh, been a rocky one already i know it has been for me i'm sure that many of you are going through it as well we're doing it though here we are right it's all good it's it's hump day let's smoke indica let's do shit anyway i'll see you all soon